Welcome to You're Not That Special. My name is Emily. And I'm Sarah. We're two Enneagram 4 INFJs here to talk with you about mental health, eating disorder recovery, and the challenges that we all face. Hey, hey. <laughs> this week, we get to hear from Grace Phyllis. And Grace is just an extraordinary human being. And one of the words that she used to describe herself in this episode was genuine. And I can really see that coming through in the work that she's doing. She has been working in the field of eating disorders since 2010. And um, she's gonna share a little bit about her different experience. Um, through that work. So I'll let her speak um, to that and how she got into the field and became so passionate about it. I think, you know, one of the things I appreciate about Grace is how she views eating disorders through the social, social justice lens um, and very much a health at every size um, alignment and really the way that she kind of dedicates herself to diversity, equity, and inclusion um, for all those levels of care, um, we'll get to hear a lot more about. She is a mom, she loves to play golf, and one of the things that I can't wait to have more conversation about is play and um, how important that is for us in recovery, and most of all, how she advocates for people. Um, we're going to hear a lot about that. So yet another jam-packed episode that I just can't wait for you to hear. Yep, this is going to be a great one, lots of great insight and great resources shared. Absolutely. Here we go. Woo-woo! Welcome, Grace. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's really a privilege to have you on You're Not That Special. Thank you both so much for having me. This is really exciting. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, just to start off, we would like you to kind of introduce yourself in terms of who is Grace, you know, outside of roles, you know, being a partner, mom, all of the roles that you might fill. Who is Grace at the core? At my core, um, it's such a good question. Um, I just feel like we don't talk about this enough in society as a whole. Um, like actually, who are we outside of these roles that we hold? Who are we outside of these occupation occupations that we carry? Um, I think the biggest piece that sticks out to me in my head is I, I just really strongly believe that I'm genuine. And I think that's something that has mattered a ton to me and been really important in my life because I think there was such a time in my life that I wasn't necessarily genuine or in touch with who I am. And so that's yeah. become like a really big value to me, like mm -hmm. that sort of pushes me along in everything that I'm doing. Um, I'm also just like everyone else. I, I think, you know, connection is hugely important to me. And I don't know that everyone would necessarily say that, but I think us being human, we can't deny that connection is um, really important, but I will say that connection for me is the fuel of my life. Like mm. me being able to connect, not, not just to connect with people, but to be able to connect to people for something yeah. to happen is like my happiest days. 
Yeah. So I would, I would say those pieces, I really love to have fun and joke around and be playful. Um, I don't think this is necessarily a role. I'm a golfer. I love playing golf. It's like my place that I can go. That is like a sanctuary to me. Ah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, cool. trying to think what other pieces of me there are that, that I really feel like define me. Um, I think I'm silly at times and I don't think yeah. a lot of people like necessarily like talk about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of so. goes with the playfulness. I'm really glad to hear that. I think play is something that we miss out on a lot. Absolutely. You know, I had, it's an interesting, there was someone that I, um, connected with in my past who, um, she'd created this whole curriculum just sort of as like a hobby, um, for adults on how to incorporate more play into your life and how play actually brings about vulnerability Mm. in adulthood and how yeah. it's a vulnerability that we aren't very good at tapping into, but it's one that's really essential for our mental health, for our physical health, for all of those things to like mm-hmm. sort of get that cortisol moving out of us. And like, I mean, you think about it, if you have a bad day and then you go have like a laugh, laughing fest, the right. amount of relief that you feel is huge. So I just think about those things, um, that she sort of taught me in this curriculum that she put together on like that play play as vulnerable in adulthood. It was amazing. I love that. that. I feel like as adults, it's something that people assume like, Oh, we shouldn't be prioritizing. You know, there's so many more important things that we need to focus on and other responsibilities, but there is just, there's so much research about how good play is for, for us, for people of all ages. So that's, I love that you bring that up. It's so, I just feel like play is so rich for our souls Mm -hmm. in so many different ways that like the more that we can tap into that, the better. And I think that society makes it so that like, as an adult play is not something that you should be really putting as utmost importance, but yet I think it's what help could potentially help us the most to grow and heal and, you know, get to really know ourselves Yeah, and the people that we're with. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast, I think it was yesterday, and um, it was a trainer that was talking about, you know, like mindful movement and such, and that on the assessment, um, they had all these different types of movement, but like one of them was just going to a playground, and I think so often we feel like, oh, I have to have a kid with me to go to the playground. I'm like, I'm going to go to the damn swim, or swim, (laughs) swing set on the playground I love swinging I'm like, yeah. I can go do that by myself I think about the monkey bars and I'm like how much oh, of a class yes. would it be to look over and you see all of these adults on the monkey bars yes, yes. oh my god yeah. <laughs> oh oh that's a that, no that's a really great point and I think something that we miss out on a lot yeah. yeah. I'm curious to know, I haven't seen anything with it if she's done anything with the curriculum, but it would be really fun to hear like different groups around the country starting to do this, like idea of like play as vulnerability or incorporating more play into their lives and how it's affected them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We should definitely be studying that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, as you know, the name of the podcast is you're not that special. So we're <laughs> wondering too, um, what some of the, you're not that special moments are that you've had in your journey. 
I will definitely say most recently I had a baby last June. Um, and like the amount that I am recognizing that I'm not that special in this, like, uh, identity crisis, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. Like I'm definitely not special in that. And Mm -hmm. it's sad to me how little there is of like community around it, Mm -hmm. you know, like I got pregnant and I had the baby and it was like wonderful and all of these things. And people had like warned me about, you know, you're going to go through an identity crisis. And I was like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) And I think that I just got totally blindsided by it, to be honest with you. And that's what it sounds like happens to a lot of people Mm. is that it's this feeling of, I knew who I was. I was really set and solid in who I was. And now I have no idea who I am. There's all of these needs and expectations on me that are different than before. And I'm supposed to sort of still be that person, but I don't feel like that person. Like, I mean, it is just like the biggest sort of like tug and pull that I've ever sort of been in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think realizing that there's so many other moms out there who that that's the case that I just feel like it needs to be talked about a little bit more. And what I'll say is like the uh, one thing that really helped me in all of this identity crisis was I went on either Facebook or Instagram. I can't remember. And I was reading, it wasn't even the post. It was someone's comment within the post. And it was, I really try to think about myself as a house and that I haven't lost any of the rooms of my house. I have just found this whole other big room that I've never seen before. And it's my opportunity to learn as much about this room as possible. And that you want to pay attention to the details because it's all new, but that does not mean that any other rooms in your house have gone away. They still exist. Isn't it cool? It like was a way for me to feel like I haven't lost anything. I'm just, Mm -hmm. this is new and in front of me. And so that's what my focus is on. And I will be back in those rooms again. Yeah. Yeah. It's like living in, I had a really old house, um, my last house. And there's like these weird hiding, you know, places or like secret cubbies um, (laughs) that like, they've always been there, but just discovering them brought a whole new aspect to the house. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, okay. that's a really, and I think you could use that visualization for so, so many, many things. things. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. Yeah, Absolutely. that's a helpful, I like that. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think there's, I feel like this is a little heavy, but I also feel like there's an element to me in my life too of, I've had a lot of loss and a lot of grief and I think there's been times that I've had to really understand that I'm not that special in that, in the sense Mm -hmm. that like a lot of other people have suffered great losses. And in some ways that feels like, um, camaraderie Mm -hmm. in the sense that there's other people who have gone through it, but at the same point in time, as you both know, with grief, like no one's ever going to fully understand what you're feeling, the grief you're feeling, how you're getting through it, where you're at on a day-to-day basis. And so I feel like it's just, it's one of those that I feel like is I'm not that special. And also it's really hard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We definitely don't want to lose out on the reality that 
like our journeys are special to us and they're unique to us. Um, I think when we utilize those experiences to isolate ourselves or as a reason to not connect with other people is where the whole you're not that special comes into play. But I definitely, yeah, I don't want to lose sight that everybody's experience is completely relevant and important and meaningful. And also there can be opportunity to connect with others in that. Totally. Yeah. And I, I think you're exactly right in that, like, don't lose sight of the fact that we all have our own individual journeys. And also in some ways, can it feel nice that you're not that special? Like mm-hmm. that this, yeah. this, like I was saying, camaraderie piece yeah. to someone else has gone through something like this. Um, and there's, it's interesting to me, like the people in my life who have had major losses and the people in my life who haven't had major losses and the difference that I feel with each of those people. I, I don't want to say that. It, I don't think it takes away from the relationships I have with people who haven't had loss, but there's yeah. this like feeling that I can't really speak to. Like I can't put words to of like, this person knows that pain. And so there's an element of like a wall broken down or like a windows open, just like an inch or a doors yeah. open, just a jar of like, you might get me a little bit more than someone who's never struggled a loss right after meeting me. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about that idea of you're not that special. Isn't about like minimizing the experiences we've had, but like you said, that camaraderie, that's a perfect word for it. I think just mm-hmm. seeing things as like you said, like somebody's experience of losing somebody that might just give that extra bit of connection and that extra reminder of, yeah, our experiences are different and unique to us, but we both know what that pain, that specific type of pain can feel like. Yeah. And I, if I'm being completely honest here, I'm, I've never been, um, I don't know if diagnosed would be the right word, but like, I, I definitely feel and relate to highly sensitive people Mm -hmm. and I feel like I am one of those. And so I am the type of person that when I hear of someone who's suffered a major loss and is in the process of grief, I can feel that. Like, I know that feeling from the losses that I've had. So like, for instance, um, two younger people in my life just recently suffered a major loss and it could almost bring me to my knees because I know that pain. I, I was the same age as they are when I suffered a major loss. Mm. And so there's like that connection and I didn't know them all that well before this loss. And now I feel like we've really connected on it because I've come to them and said, Hey, I don't know what your experience is, but I was in a similar situation. And I can tell you, I, my heart hurts for you. My soul hurts for you. Like it's so deep. I can't even put words to that either. Yeah. Yeah. There's a safety. I think that comes in relating with people of, I just, I think about my own journey and recovery and just knowing that somebody else has been through a recovery journey. You don't have to say anything, but like, I might feel more comfortable 
I don't know. I, I don't, I generally feel comfortable eating wherever, but like, you know, sometimes it's just like little things like that. It's just like, I'm not going to be wondering what somebody else is thinking or whatever. Like, I think I know that they get it. And if I did something quirky, I'm not going to be overly thoughtful of that because, you know, they've been through the journey too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What, like, in being and kind of identifying like a highly sensitive person, I don't know, is that a diagnosis or do we just identify that way? Because I... I don't think it's a diagnosis, but (laughs) I don't think it's a diagnosis, but I do know like there's therapists in the world who specialize and they only work with highly sensitive people, HST as people call it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I follow a lot of those things on social media and I'm just like, oh my God, you get me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but like, and kind of recognizing that and with your journey, are there any particular like tools or resources that have been helpful for you in being able to manage? Cause sometimes like just feeling all of that can be a load and how do you manage things like that? Yeah. Um, I think it's been interesting because I would say over the last 10 years, me recognizing that I'm a highly sensitive person and then being able to share that with people has been like an interesting process. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think in my head, I went to this place of like, everyone's just a highly sensitive person (laughs) and that's actually not the case. (laughs) Um, because it was just, that's my reality. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I think to be honest with you of, a big part for me that's been really helpful is to like verbally process with someone, my feelings and like what I'm going through. So I'm in therapy. Um, I like go in and out of therapy all the time, um, when I like need it and don't need it in those pieces, but also like getting vulnerable enough to share with the people that I'm close with my internal thought process on things has been really helpful to me in, finally feeling like someone else is understanding who I am, which makes me then feel seen and like I belong and that I'm securely attached. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like particular with the people that I share that with, but it's been showing up more, um, in the relationships that I'm investing that sort of time in. Yeah. Um, I also think like exactly what we sort of spoke to before of this idea of play. So, Mm -hmm. I've thought about this for a long time and I can't remember where I actually do know where I heard it. I was in a meditation and an intensive, I went to an intensive, um, healing retreat and one of the meditations, they really talked about that. If you can have some sort of vibration happen in your body, at least once in a day, that that's Mm. really good to equal, like equal out your system. Mm. That makes sense. So if I'm recognizing that I haven't had some sort of vibration and to me, that would be like laughing, singing, like those sorts of things, even sitting and like meditating with a singing bowl like that, you can feel that vibration. Um, then I will literally like sing or I will watch something funny or listen to something funny just to know that my body's getting sort of like that charge of the vibration to almost sort of cleanse and and get back or refresh. It's the same thing in this same healing retreat. Um, we did a lot of amygdala clearing breaths 
Mm -hmm. So like taking a really deep breath in through your nose and then long and slow out through your mouth. And like that's clearing your amygdala and helping to regulate your emotion. I do that so many times in a day to just sort of get myself grounded back in not feeling the five people or the, like feeling all of the feelings that the five people in the room are also feeling with me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard. Like, sounds like both of you might identify as highly sensitive. (laughs) So like sitting in a room of people, it is so intense sometimes because you're managing all of their emotions. (laughs) Yes. And it's it's not a choice. Like it is not, I can't turn it off. Something you're consciously aware that you're doing. It's just like, sometimes I leave an experience and I'm just wiped out, exhausted and then reflect back on it. And I'm like, well, no shit. Like totally. And like also putting it together of like how, like, yes, I, it's sort of like this nature verse nurture thought process of like, mm-hmm. was I born as a highly sensitive person, but also then looking at like the dynamic in my family yeah. when I was growing up and what my role in my family is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or it has been or whatever. And like thinking through those things. So, um, Mm -hmm. another big thing, and I'm sure people are going to be like, yeah, this is annoying to hear, but like, (laughs) honestly laying boundaries. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like I, sometimes I get to the point where I'm like, I can't be in this room and manage all of these people's feelings and sort of feel responsible for them. I literally have to leave. And I, it's no offense to anyone. It is what I'm doing to take care of myself. I need to remove myself from the situation. And I, if I offended you, that's your stuff that you need to figure out. Right. <laughs> yeah. In a way it's uh, like, cause I've, I've done that kind of thing too. And it, it feels like, okay, I'm really taking care of myself. And then I think about it. I'm like, I'm also, this is a favor to all of you as well for me to leave for a minute, <laughs> because otherwise I can't, this is too much. I can't. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk. I've explained this to my partner over and over. I'm like the hypervigilance that I feel sometimes in certain situations is overwhelming to the point Mm -hmm. that I can get paralyzed and I can't hear anything that's being said to me. And I'm not even knowing what's coming out of my mouth. And then I don't, I'm not showing up as me. Right. And so like you're managing like totally. So like take a break, take a step out of that and then step back into it. Yeah. I haven't like had a conversation about highly sensitive people. Like now we have three of us together. Like I can talk about this all day. Yeah, absolutely. It's intense. Like, there's so many stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear about your particular work um, that you're doing now and how all of, you know, who you are as an individual and your journey has really led you up to the work that you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thank you for acknowledging that. And I feel like I'm acknowledging, acknowledging that on a daily basis of, I wouldn't be where I'm at without everything that has happened, Mm -hmm. um, in the past and just being really grateful for people who've mentored me and people who've allowed me to just ask questions and be curious and maybe show up in a different way than they were expecting and, and all of that. So, um, I 
have worked in the field of eating disorders since 2010. Um, and I started off, um, working at a small, at the time it was just an intensive outpatient program. Um, they've since added some services and I, it was like two days before I graduated college and I saw this job opening and I knew that I wanted to get into mental health, but I didn't know what. And then I saw that there was this opening for an office manager at an eating disorder treatment facility. And I was like, I have no idea about eating (laughs) disorders. So why not have this be like my foot in the door to the mental health (laughs) world? And then I absolutely fell in love with the field. And then, you know, you start sort of examining your own family system and you're like, okay, so there's how many undiagnosed eating disorders that are occurring and there's how much disordered eating because we live in a culture that is disordered eating. Um, like we know nothing other than that. We are literally born into diet culture and weight stigma and all of these things. Um, and so I think it was, it was like just the perfect collision of like perfect timing, perfect, how it all worked out this, the program that I was at, they literally let me sort of participate in everything, but one-on-one therapy. So I could ask all the questions. I was in these staffing meetings. I was doing stuff with insurance. Um, I quickly moved into being a direct, their director of operations there. And I was there for five years. Um, so I learned a ton while I was there and then I moved on to a different treatment facility and was doing a lot of outreach, which at first, to be completely honest with you, I thought I was going to absolutely hate. But then when I figured out that this is actually just like connection and all yeah. about connection yeah. and this One is my whole values, <laughs> exactly. Um, then I was like, okay, so this is perfect. And so yeah. being in the fields for 12 years, it's made it so that I have really, made a ton of connections across the country, um, with people who work in eating disorders and, and been at different levels of care within treatment facility settings and being able to see that. And I think what I've recognized over the years is that there's these gaps in treatment. Mm -hmm. And, um, let me just be very clear. I'm not a clinician. So my work is all from a non-clinical lens. Um, it's really trying to fill any of the non-clinical gaps that you see in eating disorder treatment. And so that could literally be, for example, what we're dealing with right now, um, of having a short of shortage of therapists who are available to see someone who's struggling. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm dealing with, um, the gaps on the full range of, uh, levels of care all the way from outpatient, all the way up into, uh, in inpatient hospitalization. And so the ways that I sort of show up for my clients, I'm, I would say the biggest thing I would say is that I'm an advocate. Um, so, you know, someone calls me and lets me know that this is what they're struggling with and what they're looking for. And I sit down and I do a needs assessment with, with the person who is struggling. And before I even sit down to the needs assessment, I actually pass along an online values assessment that I have them take. And so then it gives me their top five values. And we talk through that in the needs assessment. So I'm not getting super clinical in the needs assessment. It's really wanting to understand where have they been treatment wise? What has worked for Mm -hmm. them? What hasn't worked for them? And then let's get into the nitty gritty of what your values are, because that is who you are at your core what matters to you the most and should be 
a huge part of your recovery journey. And so we talk through that and then it's really talking about, well, what are you wanting to get out of treatment? And we, I do a ton of research into aligning the values of a treatment program with the person who's struggling's values, because I strongly believe if the values are aligned, then the likelihood for recovery is a lot higher. Yeah. And so it could be, like I said, any level of care, it could be me just finding someone, a therapist, it could be me finding them an entire outpatient team. Um, it could be finding them a higher level of care treatment, um, and anything in between. So when I've been helping someone in the process of getting into a higher level of care treatment, I've been, excuse me, typically sitting in on the assessments with them also, just because if you think about it, the person who is struggling and their family, if they're a part of this conversation as well, they don't know the eating disorder world all that well. Right. And then there's this clinician who's doing the assessment, who does how many assessments in a day and not to take anything away from that. Cause that's very valuable, but the, the verbiage and language that they're using, they use on a daily basis and they're very right. comfortable with yeah. and these people. It's something that's new to them. The person who's struggling and terrifying, like, I mean, and the emotional experience that they're in is just like scared, panic for sure. Unknowns. And I don't know about you all, but like, even what I was speaking to with the highly sensitive person, when I'm in a place of like fear or overwhelm or crisis, I'm probably hearing maybe 30% of what someone's saying. (laughs) And so like, for me to be able to help with, here's a good question to ask, um, you know, say for instance, the dietitian is, uh, the conversation around, um, nutrition is brought up and they're talking about, Oh, this program's on an exchange program. And then they quickly move on. Hmm. No, let's take a pause here. Can right. you explain what an exchange program is? So they're understanding what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't think that people advocate enough for like, wait, what did you just say? I don't understand that piece of yeah. it. You no. Know? So really trying to advocate for that. Um, I'm also, uh, able to navigate insurance to understand what someone's benefits would be. Um, I've been calling in if someone needs a single case agreement, then I call their insurance company and get all of the details of what they need for a single case agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, which basically what that means is that someone's insurance isn't in network with that provider. And you can do something called a single case agreement to have um, an in-network coverage for, for a bit of time for that case. So trying to help navigate those pieces, um, you know, I apologize if you can hear the siren in the background. Yeah, let's just, let's just wait until they go by. Okay. Well then I can't, it's by already. Okay, good. (laughs) Um, I, it's interesting to me. Um, I started this business in the end of January and I've already had multiple families call me with the same message of the parents feeling like that one of them needed to quit their job in order to handle and manage their loved one going into treatment. And yeah. so that is not okay. Like this person still needs to be working and have like, I, I sort of compare it to my identity crisis as a mother. Yeah. They would be getting pulled out of part of their identity yeah. in order to help manage this situation. And that's not fair to anyone right. involved. Right. Um, so that's my hope is that I'm that piece of it. And then sticking along in the process, if the people, if, if the people who are struggling would like for me to, and what that's looked like is 
making sure that there's good communication between the outpatient team and the higher level of care treatment team, um, making sure that all of the things that were um, guaranteed upon admission are actually mm-hmm. being followed through with mm-hmm. yeah. and making sure that this is a good fit. And that's also what I do on an outpatient level of I call after the first and third sessions and make sure that that fit feels right. Cause if not, we need to explore it. Yeah. Well, I love how, um, the notion or the note about, uh, the treatment center and like, are they following through? There's a, cause we, I think being a provider, I want to be held accountable. Like, and I think treatment centers also need to be held accountable of, are you meeting the needs and, you know, is this client getting the care and attention that they're needing at this level of care? Yeah. Yeah. And especially if it's somebody's first time going through that process of entering treatment. I, I mean, I know speaking from experience, like it's super intimidating to try to advocate for yourself of like, Hey, this, this doesn't quite seem right. It seems like I need something different or more, or this doesn't seem like it's what I signed on for, you know? And so having somebody to advocate with, with them, just that has to be, have such a huge impact. I mean, that sounds like such incredible work. I hope so. Um, (laughs) it's been, I will say it's been, um, like an absolute honor to work with the people that I've already gotten to work with and just see the changes that are happening. And I'm the type of person who, um, I really like to think outside of the box. So we've been running into this issue of, not being able to find anywhere to send somebody who's an adolescent struggling with an eating disorder. Yeah. And so my recommendations have typically been, and what I've been doing is let's get you on a wait list for a program that feels right. And then in that meantime, why don't I work to get an individual sort of IOP plan set up for you? If you even want to call it that Yeah. where we increase the amount of time you're seeing your therapist, we increase the time you're seeing your dietitian. We add in some support groups, whether those are virtual or in-person and whether they're eating disorder specific or DBT or whatever, let's get creative in that. And then is there a recovery coach, whether virtually or in person Mm -hmm. that you could be working with? Yeah. If there's not a recovery coach, is there anybody who's been through this process that you know of that could be a support to you virtually or in person? Yeah. Just really trying to get that person to be held until they're able to step into programming. And then, you know, there's these really, you know, there's some programs coming out that are doing things differently than your traditional treatment setting of having just strictly virtual programming. Um, And I think there's an interesting, you know, we've, the eating disorder field still feels so young in that standalone treatment facilities didn't even really start until the eighties. Yeah. That's a fairly young field that, yeah. and so there's this piece of me that's like, we're just getting to sort of like the cusp of watching things, I think, be able to change mm-hmm. so that not all treatment looks the same so that we can start having different treatment options for different people. Because as we all know, eating disorders don't discriminate. And so mm-hmm. we have to start paying attention to the people who don't have access or that the modalities of treatment that we're utilizing right now are not necessarily aligned with their culture or really even supportive to who they are as a person and how they identify. And I think there's also this piece of 
we've never really seen someone recover while being in their home. And so these mm-hmm. virtual programs sort of allow treatment to happen while you're in your home. Mm-hmm. So I'm just really excited to see what more different outside of the box treatment options become available. I think, you know, there's been so many negatives with the pandemic and all of these things. And I think we also need to look at some of the positives of what has been granted and what is to come of that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we have the opportunity to reach a lot more individuals and perhaps even have earlier intervention when people are struggling, which if we can be more preventative, like by all means, I don't want to work in a field of eating disorders. Like I wish that they didn't exist. Um, 100%. I don't know what I would do otherwise, but like, <laughs> um, I, I wish that this wasn't a thing. Um, and if we can get more preventative, that means meeting people where they're at and having earlier intervention. Yeah. yeah. To, to your point, I have a um, dietitian colleague who I just really look up to her. Um, she's been in the field for a very long time and one of the first things she ever said to me, um, was that we all should be trying to work ourselves out of a job. Yes. And I think about that all the time of like, how can we get more in front of this? How can we get more in front of this? How can we get more in front of this? So I've actually been doing a lot of presentations to, um, mental health teams in school districts. Um, Mm. and really having conversations around body image and like, yeah, body positivity is great, but let's talk about the whole spectrum in there of like body neutrality and body acceptance and all of those pieces. And then let's really get into like the unlearning piece of it of, do you understand what diet culture is? Because once we start talking about diet culture, you won't be able to unsee it. Yeah. Once we start talking about weight stigma, you will not be able to unsee it. And so being able to get in front of these people who have younger generations in front of them at all times. Mm -hmm. That's where I feel like we can start making a difference. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is a whole can of worms, like (laughs) the school systems and curriculum and nutrition (laughs) and health. Yeah. I'm I'm doing air quotes health. Yes. What is, what is health? (laughs) Yep. Oh man. Grace, you're doing amazing work. I'm so glad that you saw the need for this and were courageous enough to step into the unknown to navigate it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's, it's been something that I've been thinking about for years and that I wasn't ever sure if it was going to come to fruition and then sort of timing aligned perfectly for me to think about doing something like this. And And I also think the timing aligned in, in where we're at as a field, um, that there's more need for advocacy right now than ever. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, you know, it's hard right now because I feel like, you know, we were in this pandemic and I feel like black lives matter, um, happened, you know, in 2020. And I feel like there's this, we'd just been learning a lot of research of, that eating disorders do not discriminate and, um, food insecurity and how that affects eating disorders and all of that different research that's out there. And I feel like the more advocacy that people can have for them, 
the higher likelihood that treatment and recovery is possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so like, especially supporting the LGBTQ plus population and especially supporting, um, people within the BIPOC community who struggle with eating disorders and maybe have never talked about it before. Uh, My hope is that I can start doing some advocacy work specifically around the inclusion piece of things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have these populations that already are swimming upstream, like within our society because of society um, (laughs) being what it is at times um, or all of the time. And to have one more piece of feeling like I have to advocate for myself or I have to push against this. Like if you're able to step into that space, I just, I can't imagine how powerful that would feel to somebody to be able to have that support. Yeah. Um, And I also want to acknowledge like the hardship that they've just been through in their whole lives, you know? So I, anybody who decides that they need my support and my services, and it seems like we're a good fit, anybody who's part of an underrepresented group who's struggling with an eating disorder, I have discounted rates for within my practice. Wow. Amazing. Thank you for doing that. Absolutely. The least, the very least that I can do. Yeah. Well, given this new career venture and just the, the healing journey that you've been on yourself in life, I mean, do you have any like of your proudest moments that stick out in your mind? I might be living it right now. (laughs) And just the fact that I've actually like taken the leap of really trusting and believing in myself and this work and the need for this. Um, it's still definitely like very scary and vulnerable at times. Um, but I just so strongly believe that there's not enough advocacy out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the small, uh, the small bit of work that I can do to sort of support someone along and be their advocate is an honor. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that I'm sort of living my proudest moment right now. Wow. I think, I mean, you're representing what it's means to like what degree of discomfort can I endure as far as you know as an entrepreneur there are so many unknowns and this is I think where passion and purpose outweigh yeah there might be some things that maybe you have to give up or put to the side or wait on um you know and a little bit of inconvenience or discomfort to you you know from I mean I can like just financially perhaps like in your Um, that can change significantly when you shift from having a full-time job to pursuing building a business. So I really admire that a lot of being willing to take the leap in pursuit of what is right and what is good and can have a greater impact on more people. Um, I think that's just really admirable of what you are doing. Thank you. And it's also, to be completely honest with you, it's this, I've had to continuously tell myself this over and over that if I fail and that if this fails, um, that my biggest failures in life have always set me up for my biggest growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And so like even acknowledging the small failures, if you want to put that in quotes that I'm having in like setting this all up, or if something happens and this doesn't, you know, pan out, I'm going to learn so much and it's going to push me into a whole different realm of my career and also me as a person, because I've always been of the belief that work has to add to your life. It shouldn't take away from your life. Mm -hmm. And I feel very lucky that I've found a a place in the world um, that I feel like I can be making a difference and feel very passionate about it. And that I don't feel like I'm working when I'm working. Yeah. Yes. Well, and it sounds cliche, but even if, you know, I think about this in the work that I do as like a recovery coach too, and in my future career goals that it's like, yeah, if something blows up in my face, the privilege to have even had an impact on a couple of people and their journey is, you know, it's, it's like I said, it sounds cliche, but it's, it makes it worth it, you know, to be able to advocate for somebody or walk alongside them in at least one part of their journey is huge and just means so much. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. What message do you have, Grace, for the people, you know, listening to this conversation um, within our community that you would like to share with them? Um, I would say that advocacy is key obviously. And so if you are not able to be your own advocate, there are people there to advocate for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and don't feel like you are burdening someone who is willing to advocate for you. Sometimes I think it's just in general, hard to advocate for yourself. And I think someone else can step in and and very easily advocate for you. And I think there can be empowerment and strength and resiliency that happens throughout that process, even with someone else advocating for you. Um, I think there's a lot to learn in watching someone advocate for you. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said. And that's an honor to like, sorry, sir. It's an honor to be able to advocate. And, you know, like you said, sometimes that can be hard for people to accept. Um, But when somebody is there and they want to offer that support and encouragement and be that advocate for you, it's a gift to the person giving it to. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. There's no shame in kind of reaching the, reaching your, threshold of how much I can do on my own, because there are people that are very eager and willing to step in when we need it. And so, yeah, as hard as it is to one ask for it, but also just accept it when someone Mm -hmm. is offering, you know, it's, there are people that are very, very passionate about doing that work. So yeah, that's a huge a huge important thing to work on like accepting because no one can no one can be the perfect like self-advocate all the time because it takes a lot of work and it's exhausting and so we need that assistance sometimes absolutely I mean I can speak from my own personal experience there was a situation where I would have thought me being the person who feels like this big advocate that I would have been able to advocate for myself and it was like a situation that made it so that I realized no 
this is an opportunity for someone else to advocate for you because you just got <laughs> paralyzed in the situation that just happened. So you need somebody to be there advocating for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Oh my goodness. Thank you for that reminder, because I think, you know, we need to hear that. And I think this community also needs to hear that. Yep. As we start to wrap up, we want to um, ask two fun questions um, to get to know you a little bit. And I'm most curious about the obscure th- thing that you're good at. I can very easily and always uh, tie cherry stems with my tongue. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I can't. I'm jealous. (laughs) That's crazy. I like will get a cherry and a drink and I'm like, why? Like, it's, I think it's another one of those sort of like kid play things. I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, of course I'm going to do this. So I have to, or like, if I see somebody that I'm with, (laughs) oh, you have a cherry in your drink. Are you going to eat your cherry? And they're like, (laughs) yeah, I was thinking about it. I was like, but can I have the stem? (laughs) Oh, I love it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's a good one. Yeah. Nice. I have one for you too. Um, what shape would represent your life or who you are? Am I allowed to say like the infinity? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's because a, I okay. feel like my life is always about the ebb and the flow. Oh. Um, and I think that there's the ups and the downs of that. And I think there's the, there's like balance also within mm-hmm. the infinity symbol. And yeah. then I think another piece of it is like, it's, it's ever changing and a big, part of like my journey in life and my mental health journey has continuously been been getting comfortable with the idea of that changes are only constant as much as it pisses me off sometimes Mm -hmm. like changes are only constant it's the only thing that we can really hold on to and so I think that that's a continuously ever-changing shape yeah Yeah. that's a good one (laughs) I love everybody's different reasonings and choices with all uh-huh. of those things okay if I'm ever with you and I have a cherry you will get it because I don't I don't like cherries yay so, the whole thing. okay well Grace thank you so so much for joining us today and again I can't wait for our community to hear this conversation and Um, hopefully become aware and spread about your new service and um, the work that you're doing um, as an advocate and um, in that role for those families and individuals who are navigating treatment. Thank you so much for having me. I've absolutely loved this conversation. Yeah, I'm so glad we had this chance and just I loved getting to hear everything you had to share. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.